supposed to be doing that? Okay, sorry. Okay, we're starting now. to this newest episode of Double Daria. Uh, it's Kat here. I'm by myself this week, but Sarah will be with us next time. Uh, this week's guest is Katie Bishop. She is a queer, vegan, straight-edge veteran musician in Brooklyn um, who likes to describe herself as a punk rocker in the classical music world. Katie, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me, Kat. All right. It's a pleasure to be here. Yay! I'm, I'm glad that we were able to make this work. Um, you sent me so much information about you, and so I feel like there's so much to talk about. I'm really excited, especially with your perspective of kind of being a punk in the classical music world, because um, that is, I can say, something I don't know much about. Um, but let's start with kind of your experience um, in the hardcore punk scene. Um and kind of where you started, what it was like for you. Um, give us some background into that. So I grew up in Portland, but when I was 10, moved to Northern Arizona. And that's where I first got involved with the punk and hardcore scene. And it was mostly uh, getting into it because my friends were into it. And I'd get invited to shows. And so I started going to every show I could in my small town. And before I knew it, I was pretty deep into the hardcore and the metal scenes in town. And I feel like the rift in my hardcore upbringing is that I never started a band and I was never in a band. Mm -hmm. I feel like that, that is a, a moment that I missed out on. Mm -hmm. um, however, I was, I was a music student in school, so I was always in band, just not you know, a, a punk band. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I was in the military, which I'm sure we'll talk about separately, living in Georgia. And I also got involved in the punk and hardcore scene in Georgia and North Florida. And then lived in Portland and was on the outskirts of the scene there. And I feel like now in living in Brooklyn, I feel the furthest away from the hardcore scene as I've been in my life. And I really feel like the scenes that I've most closely associated with are very small town, hometown, rural scenes. And uh, it's actually a thing I've been pondering a lot is the, the how, how scenes in a city vary from scenes in the small, no-name towns. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because I would, because I would think, I mean, I've, when I lived in Seattle a really long time ago, the hardcore scene wasn't super big. So everybody kind of knew everybody. And part of moving to Boston for me after living out here was that I would just be like another face in the crowd. Like I knew the scene would be really big um, and I wouldn't know everybody. And was that, that what you kind of liked about those smaller scenes was that it was 
I don't want to say maybe more like a family, but just the fact that everybody kind of knew everybody more. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone knew everybody, especially for instance, my, my hometown in, in Arizona where I lived, I remember in one of the metal bands, the lead guitarist was the teacher's assistant for my college band director and the bassist in one of the hardcore bands came into the diner I worked and had coffee every weekend Mm -hmm. so there are all these small little things that I just knew everyone super well Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that I feel like in the scenes in at least in New York it's not as tight as that and it could also be a byproduct of the fact that I'm an import here I didn't grow up in this scene and so finding my footing in a scene that didn't raise me is really difficult. Yeah. Do you also think then because it was, because when you had messaged about wanting to be um, on an episode, you said that kind of your experience growing up was very different than what a lot of people have talked about. Do you think that's partly that because it was a smaller scene or was it just... What was it that you think maybe made the scene where you were in Arizona different than what a lot of our guests have talked about? I think for me personally, it's the fact that my musical interests largely stem from being in the in the the band world and the classical music world. Mm-hmm. And the by band I mean like an outgrowth of a marching band. Yeah. And and you know, like a wind ensemble and a symphony orchestra. And it's really rare that I see the intersection of of classical music, classical Western mm-hmm. art music and punk rock and hardcore music. There's a lot of overlap in the metal scene and especially like in the European metal scene. Yeah. But in, Amer- in America and in the punk rock scene, the mm-hmm. two don't interact a whole lot so that's that's where I think my my relatively unique perspective on this rises from yeah for sure so what kind of got you like I know that it was from your friends and stuff is how you started going to shows but like what got you into like punk and hardcore (laughs) as a type of music especially since you have such a classical background I think it's the deviance of it. I think in in every aspect of my life, I have always been drawn to the outliers, to mm-hmm. the minority opinion, to the thing that is most taboo. And mm-hmm. in a way, I think in the music world, punk and hardcore are a little on the outskirts. It's not pop music, it's not pop 40. It's not easy to listen to rock and roll. It's not what you'll hear on the radio. So it is a little deviant within the music scene. And then, you know, I'm, I'm straight edge and I have Mm -hmm. been since high school. And that I think is a deviant subculture within a deviant subculture. So Mm -hmm. I am constantly finding myself burrowed deeply inside minorities within minorities in that way Mm. I really like that I like that 
like I think that that is why right the majority of people kind of get into punk and hardcore is that they often feel like an outlier in our quote-unquote normal society and so they find a place where they where they I don't want to say fit in but I guess kind of at least find some camaraderie in a way 100 percent like in in the best of times Mm-hmm. The hardcore scene, the metal scene, the punk scene is there to really take care of the people who are not taken care of elsewhere. Yeah. And I feel like that's a very kind of maternalistic take on mm. it. And <laughs> hardcore and punk and metal are so macho broy that I don't think they will openly admit to that. Mm. Uh, but, you know, like as a woman in the scene, I will totally, totally say that it is a very nurturing scene when it is in its best form I agree I agree and I think that that's why I've never kind of given up on a scene that I feel like can often make me feel excluded because it is so macho but yeah it I I really appreciate that perspective it feels it feels good to to really um you know, to have high expectations of the scene and to yeah. hold it to hold it up to its professed ideals. Because, you know, so often we hear hardcore songs talking about unity and sticking up for one another. And like, you know, it's so often this is a brotherhood, um, which, you know, we can get into that. But like, okay, you know, treat us like the family you say that we are. Yeah. Like, if you're going to say we're all here for one another, then I'm going to hold you to it. And and I think uh, this is a thought that's just now occurring to me because I've been thinking about uh, this separately is it it feels in a lot of ways like very American in that the, mm-hmm. America is built on these ideals and these very lofty ambitions. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious that left and right we're failing at these ideals and ambitions. Sure. However, I think there's really something to be said about holding it to that standard. And it's like, okay, you know, you're, you, you're talking the talk. Now let's get you to walk the walk. I am already so in love with you. <laughs> Thank you for that. I feel like I needed to hear that because I've definitely had moments lately where I'm just like, I'm just so over this, but I love hearing that. Like, no, this is like, this is our baby that we need to hold to a higher standard and know and believe that people can, can meet that. Can, can exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have faith that people will do right and they will choose the better thing to do for one another. But it gets, it gets hard. And, you know, I'm not infallible. I've fucked up. I know that for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but we know what goodness is and yeah. we're capable of it and yeah. we can hold each other up and hold each other accountable for it as well. Yeah. Awesome. So <laughs> I want, I want to spend a lot of time talking about your kind of your classical background and what you do with that, just because you are such a unique guest in that way. I don't think 
many of us in the hardcore scene can say we know somebody who is like classically trained and like composes music and also does it um, in a way where they're trying to talk about in their classical music, trying to talk about political and social issues. So let's kind of start with like your background into how you got involved in classical um, music. So I started out in kind of classical adjacent music, which is middle school and high school band music. It certainly historically grows out of classical music, but it's very far, far detached from like proper classical music. So I started playing bassoon, clarinet, saxophone in middle school, played them in high school, and went into the military to play music because I slacked off in getting ready for college. So all this time I was really only staying in the like bandy band world and didn't really have much interaction with classical music. Okay. Funnily enough, I some of my favorite composers now, I remember having listened to in high school and I couldn't wow. stand the music. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this is this is terrible. What is this crap? Yeah. And now I'm like, oh my God, wait, like, yeah, I I did have a Pierre Boulez album when I was in ninth grade. And mm -hmm. now I think of him as like an incredible composer, but back then I couldn't even get through one track. So, so for a decade, I was just doing bandy band music. And by the time I was finishing my tour in the Marine Corps, I was focused almost primarily on bassoon which is very, very much in an orchestral instrument and really kind of just got shoehorned into the band world. So that I think naturally led to me when I went to college to study music, to being in the more symphonic classical world. Okay. And so the first time I played in a proper symphony orchestra was when I was a freshman in college, wow, which okay. yeah, for most, proper classical musicians is really late because uh, you know usually classical musicians are playing in youth orchestras when they're right. seven yeah so I was very very behind the curve in that um, and I have a lot I have a lot to say on the the socioeconomics of classical oh, music sure. and <laughs> we can talk how, about <laughs> yeah and how far behind I got um yeah but so it's really in undergrad that I got deeply involved and invested with classical music. Uh, also, when I was in the military, I started writing my own music a little bit and just dabbling. So when I went to college, I decided to focus on composition as my major. And that led me deep down the rabbit hole of composers. And again, because I'm one to always look for the outliers and the deviants, I, I think I curated for myself a very eclectic set of composers in whose footsteps I wanted to follow. And so then I finished undergrad and I moved to New York City to go to grad school studying music theory and composition. And all the while was really trying to infuse my classical studies with a punk rock ethos. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, 
I'll I'll let you ask some some guiding questions to get there. But uh, <laughs> I'll I'll say a couple a couple little stories that I think illustrate where I was beginning to merge the two. So when I lived in Portland, I worked as a stagehand at um, some pretty large venues. So shows that shows that would seat like three four thousand people. So we were dealing with like mid-level fame usually like rock and roll bands yeah. uh, so I got very involved with the stage hand scene and the rock and roll stage hand scene and I I learned you know like back of house audio and lighting and you know loading in semi trucks of gear and so when it came time in my undergrad part of the graduation requirements is to put on a recital in your junior year, in your senior year. And so for my junior recital, I went very over the top with the production of it and mm. brought in some of my rock and roll stagehand friends to help me out with the show. So wow. I was doing a classical music recital in the recital hall of my university, but I also had strobe lights and a fog machine Wow. And I had video recording it all. And so it very much felt and looked like a rock and roll show, but yeah. it was a classical music concert. So that is where, I think that was one of the first moments where I really synthesized being a punk rock kid and being a classical musician. That got me thinking and I was writing down a question to ask but I guess I could just I mean this might be jumping ahead a little bit but like when I think of cl the, the classical music world I think of it as I don't know kind of stuffy and proper and maybe that's totally wrong and that's just like a generalization about classical music but do you feel like because I've listened to your music and it's very eclectic when it comes to what I think people think of with traditional classical music. Do you feel like um, the classical world treats you in a way in a, in a, in a way like you're not? A classical musician does that make sense what I'm trying to say yeah yeah I mean I have, I have a few threads I can pull on there yeah um I mean so you know your observation of classical music being very stuffy and uptight uh is correct in the same way that punk rock music is a bunch of slovenly unkempt yeah hoodlums right uh, you know, which like, yes, and. Yes, and. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like, yeah, if you go to the Philharmonic uh, in a band shirt, you know, A, some classical orchestras won't even let you in if you're not right. dressed properly. Right. Um, so like, yes, hella uptight. However, there is a lot of push, especially from the younger cohort of classical musicians to upend these traditions. And those are really what is pushing people away. The really interesting thing 
this is a little bit of an aside, but the interesting thing in the institution of classical music is that on the one hand, these behemoth orchestras need to cater to their patrons mm -hmm. who are the rich and the old and the wealthy right? Uh, because they're the ones that bankroll the whole thing. Right. You know, an, or an orchestra is an incredibly expensive endeavor because they're all unionized. They all have salaries. All the stage hands have salaries and are unionized. Everyone who works in the auditorium is on a contract. So to put on a show, there's a lot of people getting paid a lot of money, which is as a musician, as a stage hand, as a performer, like, great. That is, you know, a good way to make a living as a musician. Yeah. yeah. However, this isn't attracting a younger, newer audience, Right. which is to say that as these patrons age out and all die, there's going to be no audience left. So right. these big institutions need to do something to attract a younger crowd. But the younger crowd wants things that are revulsive to the older crowd. Mm -hmm. So these bigger institutions are sort of having to play a balancing act of appeasing the patrons so they can pay their bills while yeah. also bringing in younger people so that they have a future. However, that's at the like very large institutional level. Yeah. And there are many smaller classical music groups and chamber ensembles and solo performers who are going in a much different direction. Um, um, so anyway, to, to your point, um, you know, one thing like uh, to to go on the the, the socioeconomic yeah. part that I that I had alluded to earlier, I yeah. you know I I as a as an individual did feel welcome in my in my realm mm -hmm. um, in the classical music world. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't ostracized. I I was noted as like, oh wow, look at that, you know, look at that girl with like tattoos and like who wears <laughs> band shirts and like gasp. But like, you know, so I did stick out, but it was also, you know, I wasn't a pariah in any way. And I was okay. you know, I was I was known in my music schools, um, and, and generally well liked. Uh so, you know, being a, a punk rock hardcore kid didn't didn't put me in the bad graces of anyone. However, growing up poor, you know, having bouts of homelessness, uh, not coming from money in any way, shape or form, mm -hmm. I realized institutionally put me super, super far mm -hmm. behind the curve in the classical music world, especially by the time I had gotten to graduate school and I was at a little more prestigious of an institution than where I went to undergrad. Yeah. Everyone in my orchestra in grad school had been playing in orchestras since they were five or six. Wow. And their par their parents put them in violin or piano lessons from the time they could hold an instrument. And I, you know, so there were, there were kids who were, you know, five years younger than me that have 10 years more experience than me, simply by the fact of their parents having the money and the connections to get them access to the music. And I think that's ultimately one of the factors that drove me out of the classical music world. 
um, you know, I, I still feel nominally involved in that scene, but okay. nowhere near as, I'm nowhere near as deep into it as my peers uh, throughout school currently are. And, and then speaking to the politics of music, yeah. punk rock and hardcore is very of this time and very much speaks to what's going on in the world around it. Um, whereas, you know, for a very blatant contrast, the New York Philharmonic in their 2019 season, they programmed a show with 19 women composers to celebrate the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. <laughs> And so that just feels so very quaint. Oh my god, right? <laughs> it's like How performative. Oh, oh, right. Oh my god. It's painfully performative. Yeah. And and it was it was in the larger classical music world praised as like, wow, look at this big thing they're doing. Uh now of course, you know, all the like up and coming classical musicians and the more on the pulse people are like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. this is the best you can do. Yeah. You know, an institution that could go 19 years without programming a woman. And yeah. now you're making a big point about, you know, having 19 women on one concert. Um, so it, 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 the classical music world just uh, by and large feels very out of touch with reality. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it it clearly has a lot to do with just how, how moneyed that music is and that most of the people in that scene are affluent and well-educated and haven't had the struggle, so they don't need to worry about the, the struggle of life. And it just gets exhausting being the one who has had to struggle like that and trying to make your way in that world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I was wondering, like, so I see why you've kind of strayed away from that world in a way, but at the same time, I wonder if that world needs people like you to. That's a conversation I have. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a conversation I have with some friends of mine all the time. One of my, my, my best friend from undergrad, another queer person we've spoken about how disenfranchised we feel with with that world and are like yeah but like you know it's going to take people like us to like to stay in the ring and fight the fight and I'm like yeah I totally get it and without people like us it's not going to change but I'm tapping out uh my friend is still giving it a go and he's still in the classical music world and still working his hardest to shake things up and like god bless but i just you know i'm i'm tired of that i have more interesting things that i want to spend my time on totally however (laughs) all that to say that i i love i love 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 broadly quote-unquote classical music there's so much that can be said and expressed through orchestral instruments and through instrumental music and the palette of sounds offered within the realm of western art music it's just there's nothing like it and even even on the days where i hate that classical music world 
the most, I can put on a favorite recording of mine and instantly be reminded of how beautiful everything there is and how much I just love the music. And that's really what keeps me around uh, mm. to the degree that I am and has kept me with it for so long, that the music is amazing and there's so much to do and so much to explore. It's just the people associated with it are fucking insufferable. So let's talk about what you're doing with your music that you're composing, um, because you are making the point to have it be political or have it deal with social issues or things like that, that maybe are um, fringe or taboo in a lot of the classical world. You, One of the things um, I watched a video of you doing a series of pieces or performances called Deliver Us from Donald. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's where I, I feel like I really found my musical voice for the first time oh, in cool. a real way. Yeah, so it was, I was in grad school when Trump got elected. And I remember it was a Tuesday night, election night, I went to bed um just thinking like okay cool politics as usual like hillary's gonna win and whatever and then waking up wednesday morning uh to the fact that trump had won Mm -hmm. and it just like hit me like a ton of bricks like oh shit like as a queer person in america life is not gonna be easy anymore and wednesdays were orchestra rehearsals at school and I remember trying to get ready for school that day and I just couldn't. And I ended up skipping skipping class that day. It was like, I think the only time in my six years of music school that I ever just skipped class. Mm. And, you know, I ended up just like falling asleep again because of the stress and was having very vivid and frightening stress nightmares that woke me up again. And that day I remember calling one of my friends in the city and was like hey I'm like not okay and they're like oh my god yeah I'm fucked up right now and so we you know just went and like found a vegan restaurant to just like meet up at and just sort of like hold each other in our sadness of the moment and so from that moment I was like I need to do something what what do I need to do and I was thinking about what activism is what it means and what my activism is And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm a musician. Music is what I know. So my activism has to be something with music. Otherwise, I'm just going to be trying to reinvent the wheel. And that would be asinine. Mm -hmm. So I started percolating on this idea of like, oh, what if I do some sort of like protest show or Mm -hmm. something like that? And this is also where I began to really lose faith in the classical music world. Because I got really excited as I was building up this idea to put together a protest show. And I brought up the idea in the wind ensemble and the symphony orchestra. And, you know, out of pitching this idea to 120 fellow musicians, I had like two people that were like, oh, that sounds really cool. Like, yeah, count me in, I'll work with you. And I was like, really? Really y'all? Like, this is how detached from reality you are that, that, Trump getting elected means nothing to you and you're not upset by this. Um, 
I started turning to my queer friends outside of school and ended up putting together this show uh, that I called Deliver Us from Donald. And I was one of my more proudly named things I've done and did a really great show that um, I ended up giving all of the all of the money from that show to uh, Standing Rock because that was mm-hmm. that was sort of at the forefront of our minds at the time, and so that set the president of like, okay, every show I do will be a benefit for some something that is impacted by this political environment. Um, so each show I I donated all the proceeds to a different a different group and I started focusing more and more on my own community so giving the money to a New York based group and another thing that I did with the show thinking not entirely you know like federal politically but artistically politically is I brought on myriad performances on that show so I was coming to it as a classical musician in the classical music world. But I also have friends who do performance-based art outside of that. So I had uh, a poet speak. I had uh, a visual artist create some works that were on display. There were a couple singer-songwriters that were there. And everyone on the show was coming from a different realm of performance and I really like that idea so moving forward with the series I made a point to never have two of the same kind of music or art on on a given show that's awesome and and I ended up doing seven shows in this series uh over over the Trump presidency and also learned that I really really enjoy producing and emceeing shows. So the first few shows, I was very musically involved, but I realized that like, oh my God, you know, if I'm performing, writing a new piece, organizing everyone, communicating with the venue, putting everything together, like shit, I need to take something off my plate. And so what I wanted to take off the plate was like first, the first thing that came off the plate was like writing more music and performing more music. So I realized that I really do like, organizing the shows and tapping into my social network to draw in performers and getting everyone under one roof on one stage and building a really intimate environment and introducing audiences and performers to performances that they wouldn't otherwise see. And are these, is this series still happening? The last one I, mean, I did. COVID was, obviously doesn't help, but are you going to pick it up after after kind of things seem to maybe settle down a bit? Um. So the last show I did was the last Deliver Us from Donald show I did was December of 2019. Okay. Uh, and then the last show show I did was like the last week of February of 2020, mm-hmm. um, which was my music going in a different direction. I can talk about that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Please. Um, but so I've, uh, one of my, one of my friends who's worked with me a lot in the Deliver Us from Donald series, um, is a, is a fellow musician friend of mine, uh, 
Eli Denby Wood. And they had a series of shows in the city called Acoustic Queer. And their whole thing was unplugged music on rooftops, in backyards, Mm -hmm. in apartments, just building a community around music, but acoustic music. Um, So we we've both performed on each other's shows and have Mm -hmm. built some musical bonds in that way. And we've recorded stuff together and written stuff together. However, we've, we both kind of have a love hate relationship with music. Mm -hmm. And lately we've both been feeling kind of, kind of having some feelings about like what we want to do with music. And so I just recently had the idea of like, Oh wait, what if we like do a last hurrah, like joint acoustic queer deliver us from Donald's show. Because okay. Eli would love to see Acoustic Queer carry on, but yeah. they don't want to be the one to carry that torch. They want to yeah. hand it off to, to a younger musician. Uh, and I, I want to move on to a different type of series of music, but I want to give like Deliver Us from Donald sort of a, mm-hmm. like a cherry on top. So when, when we're able to, I think we're going to have one final joint show uh, that will neatly tie off each of our concert series um so yes it is going to continue but for for one more show and then then i think i'm i'm hanging that one up for a little bit and and what are you going to move on to so where i've been going with my music um is really trying to I don't know, this sounds so cliche and cheesy, but just writing the music that is in me and that is uniquely mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I felt like for a lot of the Deliver Us for Donald shows, I wrote music that was topical and of the moment. Yeah. And was responding to what was going on. Yeah. And while I was in school, I was writing music very much influenced by what I was learning what scores right. I was studying at the time, what music I was really liking, and and trying to to push some limits of music and and really find myself, you know, writing some things that maybe I liked but maybe I didn't, but just sort of like flexing and learning what I could do. Okay. And now the music I've written is really, I don't know, again, not to sound cheesy, but it's feeling more organic. And it's like, okay, cool. I've, I've learned everything from like music school. I've picked up all the things from the different composers that I want to pick up things from. I've learned a lot of theory and compositional technique. And I know how to write music of the moment. And so now I've synthesized all of that. And like, I am a very political person and I am a very... Um, out person and mm-hmm. I'm very very present with who I am and what I do so writing that music I think is going to come naturally so I'm really just trying to write music without any pretenses and so the a lot what that's looked like is kind of just writing very like overtly queer music that deals a lot with like queer romance and queer sex and and dealing a lot with the kink world and so kind of combining all of that the last show I did is really I think the 
the zenith of what I want to do. And when I get back into performing more is what I really want to focus on is writing sort of staged performance music where I have a chamber ensemble playing music and I had, there's a kink scene going on with the music that was performed by a few kink partners of mine. And it was, it was loosely choreographed. There were some things that were like meant to go together. And that's something that I really enjoy and it feels right to me. And it's something that I want to explore more of. So that's where I see my music going. A, a moment that really sticks out in my music school days was there was a, in my composition seminar in graduate school, there was a composer who came and spoke to us and he was an older gay man and he was talking about living through the AIDS epidemic in New York City in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And he lost his would have been husband if they could have gotten married to AIDS. And he's really dealt with that in a like very visceral way. And he wrote a requiem to his husband uh, after his death. And, you know, that really hit me, uh, you know, as, as a queer person. Uh, and I'm also uh, a person that has HIV. So knowing all that, I, I asked him this question of like, you know, how, how do I write music that, you know, especially in the classical realm when you don't often have words and lyrics to convey yeah. meanings, you know, how, how do I write overtly gay music? How do I write queer music? Like what is going to make my music be that way? And I was asking him, I'm like, oh, you know, you are an, an established gay composer who writes gay music. And his response to me was so simple is that like, you don't need to do anything by virtue of you being you writing your own music, you are writing queer music. And it was like, oh, duh, like it's so simple. But again, hearing it from someone, you know, of such stature and prominence was like, oh, right. Like I knew this all along. I think I just needed to hear it from the right person. And so that's the thing that I realized it's like, oh, right. I just need to write and do my own music and it will naturally come out. I, I kind of had that question, right? Like, well, how do you kind of um, get these messages off that you're trying to have within your music without say lyrics or lyrics or, or words or anything? But I guess that just makes, that makes total sense that it's you being you um, and you writing your music is going to, in a way, share that with other people. Yes. And I also have come to incorporate more lyrics and spoken yeah. word right. into my music. Um, you know, whereas like the first 30 pieces of music I wrote were all instrumental. Yeah. I'd say five out of the last six pieces of music I've yeah. written have had words and or lyrics to them. And is that because... Um, 
you want to like are you do you feel like you need to include those lyrics or words or do you just want to is that just part of what you're going for with your music a little bit of both okay um i i come at the voice from a very different way than most composers yeah. do yeah um and i actually remember getting getting some flack for this from one of my composition teachers in graduate school because he he primarily wrote for uh choirs and opera and voice accompanied by orchestra and so he was very and he's an old old guy and so he's very much of the mind of like you know the music is there to support the singer and the singer is <laughs> you know the the star of the piece and everything is for that person mm. and i'm like but but no like the singer is just one of many yes. like they're no better no worse than anyone else right. Right. uh you know and so if i want to have a 10 minute piece of music that only has two minutes of of lyrics in it like i can do that yeah. and so what if the singer has five minutes where they're not singing yeah um but so what what started me doing more more word stuff in my music my my graduate thesis was a composition and it was i wrote a requiem to the victims of the pulse massacre yeah. so it was about a 15 20 minute piece uh that was sort of a musical journey starting in a very lighthearted fun playful way mm -hmm. going into like a very dance atmosphere and then having very abrupt violence happening mm -hmm. and then going into the a very dirge like requiem and in that i intoned the voices of the 49 people mm -hmm. who were murdered uh so that is a way I found to incorporate voice mm -hmm. and to be very direct about it being queer music, but without there being any singing involved. And then another piece I wrote a few years ago that influenced this, and this is one of the ones that uh, I have recorded and online, um, has spoken word and singing. And it was um, words written by an old friend of mine that was sort of a an, an internal and external dialogue within a kink scene and so it's uh, like a kinky pop and the way that the prose is written is that there are some some words where she is speaking to her partner who she's beating up and some words she is thinking in her own head and so I wrote that into the music in that the music, the words that were, were spoken to her partner were spoken in the music. And then the words in her head were sung as, as an opera singer. So it goes back and forth. And so really, I think learning to come at the voice from a different angle and not think of it as just like, a sing-song melodic instrument has shaped how I write and knowing that I can use it as much or as little and that can fill out the contours of 
of the the queerness of my music, as it were. How do you think, as a classically trained musician or the classical world, how do you think it they could? How do you think it could become more accessible to people, not only to listen to, but also um, to to perform in? Because, like you said, socioeconomically, it tends to be upper middle class or wealthy people, you know, it often is white, um, but not, you know, not completely. Um, How do you, how do we make, or how do you as a community um, make classical music more accessible to all people? I mean, it's the thing I think about a lot. I mean, me personally, you know, doing the shows that I do and getting myself involved with projects that aren't really classical, is a way I do it. You know, case in point, your ears have been opened to the diversity of sound within the classical realm. Right. Um, And one thing that I I found was really interesting is the different reactions I would get from my music, from my peers in music school and then music lovers who weren't in music school. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like people who aren't in the classical realm enjoy my music more than the people who are in the classical music realm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I don't know exactly why it is, maybe because the people in the classical music realm are, are focused on like figuring it out and piecing it together. Whereas people who are outside of the classical music realm can just listen and enjoy it and hear how different it is. Um, I mean, so that's one thing is just the fact that like classical music can be for everyone. It can be listened to by anyone. And there's so, so, so much of it out there. I mean, case in point, like listen, think of, Think of hardcore in the early 80s, you know, mm-hmm. old, old minor thread, old dead Kennedys. And now look at where hardcore is. Yeah. And that's in the span of like, what, 30, 40 years? Yeah. There's been that much of an evolution. Yeah. You know, and like, there's so much growth and change has happened in that time. Okay, now realize that quote-unquote classical music as we know it can really be traced back to like the ninth or 10th century right so just <laughs> imagine the possibilities you know if if punk rock can grow this much in 40 years then imagine how expansive quote-unquote classical music is in the span of you know 10 centuries yeah yeah so i think just just opening the door I think is the first thing exposing people and letting people know that there's so much out there and there's some there is some really fucking punk rock music in the western classical art canon yeah for our final segment talking about kind of what you've been listening to um and then like we'll, we'll start with what you've been listening to and I look forward to kind of hearing the expanse of everything that you've been listening to whether it be classical or not or music or not like what has been 
taking up your time in your ears right now? Oh man, and this is this is where it gets so hard because I could <laughs> I could go on like I one of my favorite things is just listening to music, finding new music, mm -hmm. and sharing music with people. Yeah. Um, and I dip my fingers in a lot of different pools of of music. Um, Oh, okay, so I'm trying to trying to <laughs> stalling for time to organize my thoughts around this. Um, I will say that my my favorite new music that I've gotten into in the last five years, let's say, uh, is this group called Go Go Penguin, and they're they sit sort of at the intersection of jazz and electronica. Okay, and it's they're they're a jazz trio out of England, uh, so it's uh, bass, piano, drums, and they're very obviously influenced by by jazz trios and playing with jazz chords and melodies and playing off of each other in that way, but then they throw in quirky recording studio magic and bring bring everything they're doing outside of the realm into jazz and do simple things like playing with reverb and then do other more complex studio techniques that you know I know nothing about recording so okay. I can't even begin to explain it but I just know that they that there are a lot of manufactured sounds that are incorporated into their music that are that are only possible through electronic technology and playing with you know different things and pro tools and logic and what have you okay uh, and so and so that also is a whole realm of music that i've been really digging into okay uh, in, the, in the last few years especially is largely european music that comes out of the jazz tradition but incorporates elements of non-jazz music into it. And the thing I think is really cool in Europe, especially in the Northern European countries, is that a lot of their music is state-funded mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it allows for really cool exploration of music. You know, like the only, the only big bands in the world that exist anymore are all in Northern Europe because they're really expensive to keep together but if the government's funding it, then, you know, they can make it work. Right. And again, like how I love orchestral music and orchestral instruments because of the sound palette it offers. Yeah. A jazz band is the same way. And there are just certain sonorities that only exist in a jazz band that are so cool. But a jazz band takes a lot of people. And yeah. if you're trying to do it professionally, it takes a lot of money. And with the state throwing money at it, it can exist. And it's like, oh my God, this is this yeah. is what happens when the state funds the arts. Yeah. You get really cool <laughs> stuff that can't exist in the free market because it's not commercially viable. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, and it's also a completely different realm than I've touched on so yeah, far. Yeah, for sure. Too. Um, I'm, I'm also trying to, get more into the local scene here cool. 
um, you know, I'm looking forward to more shows coming back. I can see more local bands. Right. Because um, that's something I really miss from small towns yeah. is, you know, the local scene and yeah. going to shows that are just shows organized by people in the area. There's no touring bands coming through. Right, right, right. Um, what else? I'm going to Fest in October. Yeah. So that I'm really getting stoked and excited for. Yeah. Uh, and so exploring bands that are on that playbill. Um, yeah, and that, like the first Fest I went to was in 2008. Okay. Um, so I've, this will be my fourth time going. And nice. uh, so that, that, it, it, all that to say that that's music that has been in my life for mm-hmm. for much longer than than the here and now. Yeah. Um, and oh man, this is like oh, we could talk about music forever. I'm like, do I want to talk about shows? Do we talk about genres? Do we talk about bands? Do we talk about albums? Let's talk about your all time favorite bands or albums then. If you have five, top five. Oof. <laughs> well, so even that is hard because, <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so, so how I think of it is um, there are favorite albums of mine that I love that are just so good, like feel good music. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's the albums that have been very, very influential on myself as a musician. And okay. od- oddly enough, they they don't really overlap. Um, the, the things that have really influenced me may not necessarily be a favorite, but like, I have to admit like, wow, that last. So in, in favorite albums, um, The Note by Bane. Wow. That might be the first time I've ever heard somebody say The Note by Bane is their one of their favorite <laughs> albums. The Note of all albums. I mean, I love The Note, so I get it, but that is probably the first and only time I'll ever hear that. <laughs> I, it it could be because that was the first Bane album I listened to. Um, you know, I I didn't get in. I like I know their whole discography yes. now. Yes. Um, you know, but but the note was the one that like really like drew me in, like a moth to a flame. Totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is my therapy. Um, you bring life into me. I get it. <laughs> Yeah, there are so, so many meaningful songs on that album yeah, for, for sure. me. Yeah. Um, um, oh, uh, uh, Almost Home by Evergreen Terrace. Okay. Wow, you're so I, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I know, you, you know, you told me earlier you're not a metalcore fan. Um. <laughs> That was an album for me that all throughout high school, I never even listened to Evergreen Terrace because yeah. I just knew that they were one of those stupid metalcore bands yeah. and I am too good to listen to that crap. I would never be caught dead listening to them. Uh, and then that album came out like 2008, 2009 and yeah. I saw it at, at FYE and I was like, oh, you know what? Like, 
you know, fine, I'll, I'll buy this album and like, see what the big deal is. Like, yeah. I'd, I'd kind of gotten, you know, I wasn't in high school anymore. So it's no longer too cool to listen to it. Right. And I was like, oh, shit, this is good. This is really okay. good. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, along the same lines, an album that I think fits both favorites and most influential is Undoing Ruin by Darkest Hour. Okay. I could see that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so that was, again, kind of a band that I was like, mm, like, maybe, yeah, maybe I should be embarrassed that I'm buying this album. <laughs> um, but also like, oh, wait, no, this is like metal as fuck. And yeah. these guys are tight and they are yeah. good. And it's an album that I've gone back and listened to. And I'm like, oh, this is still really, really good. That's awesome. Um, an album that I've been coming back to lately because it's just like, it has such great lyrics and is like so strong and emotional is um, um, Compassion Fills the Void by Stretch Armstrong. Yes. Oh my God. I love Stretch Armstrong <laughs> so much. <laughs> yes. They are one of my all time favorite hardcore bands and they were actually like a huge influence on like getting me to become a teacher so no way oh yeah two of them them are teachers one of them I think is still a teacher but two of them are teachers and um just like being like oh look like cool punks can be teachers too you know and they're just such good good people and my god I'm like so bummed I'm not going to go to Furnace Fest um, oh my God! Only, oh, yes. only because I, I want to go to that them. so bad. I want to see them so badly, but my fingers are crossed that maybe they'll play another show other than Furnace Fest. But I just can't. Oh, I hope so. I would rather go to Furnace Fest yeah. than the fest. Yeah. But like, I've gone to fest for so long, and it's such a like beautiful place, and I love Gainesville. But it's like, okay, like, you know, I I can splurge to go to one out-of-town show. And, like, I'll go to the one that I have the more emotional connection to, even though the lineup at Furnace Fest is to die for. It's, it is literally 2003. <laughs> yeah. Oh, again. Like, it's just, you know, I'm like, oh, oh, okay, so, uh, as friends, Russ can't play, so now you're having bury your dead play. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I like one qualm, like I do have the qualm with Furnace Fest that it's like being booked by like 50 year old dudes who are literally just booking like 40 year old dudes. And it's like extremely one type of person playing. I mean, there's like only a couple newer bands. And then there's like maybe a couple bands with women. Like it's literally just dudes upon dudes upon dudes. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I was looking. There's like four bands with girls in the whole yeah. lineup. So, like, I appreciate Fest because it's actually always an extremely diverse lineup because it's literally, ev- it spans all of Pug, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. They make room the for choice. everyone. <laughs> you made the better choice. <laughs> um, do you know this band, Hot Cross? Of course I know Hot Cross. Oh, shit. Okay. I mean, like, I they're, they're a newer band that I've gotten into because, um, and I bring them up because, like, 
to me, they give me like heavier Stretch Armstrong yeah. vibes. Yeah. Just especially in their like, like their their bass melodies yeah. and the independence of the lines and also yeah. kind of like the contrapuntal nature of what's going on in their music. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I've kind of been stumbling upon a lot of bands who like released one amazing album yeah. and then disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, like, I know that's like such a thing. Uh, another one is this band Color, uh, okay. Color with a U. Okay. Uh, they, they have one album, Anthology. It was their music from 2006 to 2009. And it's it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. But again, one album, that's all yeah. they did. Yeah. I have one of those bands that I love. They were called Dogs on Acid. They were from Philly, I believe. And they put out like one album. Maybe it was like an album and an EP, but they were like barely a band and they were amazing. And then they just stopped being a band. And I'm like, but I wanted to see you play and I like can't find a t-shirt. Like I can't find anything about this band. And I'm like, but why? Uh, I wish I almost wish I never heard this band now because it's just, I it's, it, it's so hard when bands do that. You're like, but why didn't you do more? You were like a perfect band. Right. Like there was so much, so much more for you yeah. to have done yeah. so much more to explore with the sound. And yet, Oh, oh. Yeah. Okay, I how about that. how about a couple um albums that are very influential? Um so I'm gonna put this as an album because I think in contemporary parlance that's what it would be. Okay. But Igor Igor Stravinsky's Ride of Spring. Uh-huh. Is is uh do you know this piece? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um <laughs> Like that is, uh, it's so it, for people who haven't heard of it, it's a that it was originally written as a ballet, um, yeah. in in uh, oh shit, what was it? 1912 is when it was written, and it really, really pushed the limits mm. of every kind of music and every kind of performance at the time. There was um, probably, very probably, a riot broke out in the first performance <laughs> of it in Paris, wow. uh, which I also think is like pretty punk rock, yeah. except, you know, 60 years before the emergence of punk rock. Right. Um, because like the dancing for it was very jagged and angular and moved in ways that at the time dancers were not supposed to do. And the music just like shifts tonalities, it shifts keys. It is very metrically obtuse. It's an incredibly dense and complex score. And again, nothing like it had been done at the time. So that's a piece that I studied inside and out throughout school all the time and very, very much influences what I write and how I write. Um, and like, I, I love the piece of music, but I don't know if I would say it's like a favorite. I mean, like, I guess it is a favorite piece of music, yeah. but it's not like top 10 favorite. Uh, but I think listening to it as a piece of music, you know, it's like 45 minutes long. So it, it operates as an album, I will say. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, there's also, this is one, I've been looking my whole life for this. There's a Dizzy Gillespie live album that I found in middle school. And I can see exactly the album cover in my head, but it was just called Dizzy Gillespie Live. Mm. Uh, so I've, I've been looking for it ever since then. And I've never found it again. Yeah. But that album, uh, one of, I, in one of the, in, in my jazz studies in school, I was in a seminar on improvisation Mm-hmm. And the person leading the seminar had some very, very insightful uh, lessons on music that I took from it. So this was, I think, 2006, 2007, I was in this seminar. And he was, you know, he was an old guy, but he was bemoaning the, uh, the shuffle feature on iPods and was saying that it, that because we're now in this shuffle generation, which I think now is the same with autoplay on Spotify, yeah. uh, that both of these things lend themselves to sort of mindless listening mm. and that you're just letting the machine dictate what you're going to listen to mm. next. Mm. And so he, to, to that, he was saying, pick one album and only listen to it for a month and listen to that album so much that you can sing every single line of every instrument in the album front and back. And A, that is a very, very difficult task, (laughs) especially, especially now. Like I can't imagine listening to a single album for a month straight at this point. Um, But anyway, all that to say that this Dizzy Gillespie album I'd listened to I listened to it so much that I could sing every solo in it. I knew all the lines. I knew where everything went. And so that really influenced how I thought about music, how I thought about improvisation, how I think about rhythm. And it was also very weird instrumentation. It was like a 12 piece jazz band. Hmm. So like not really a big band, but too big to be a combo. And there were like French horns in it, which are not a jazz instrument at all. (laughs) Yeah, it was just strange in so many ways. Um, So that, you know, it taught me, it taught me about melody, about line, about obscure harmony, about weird instrumentation, about, you know, kind of being both of a thing while also being neither of a thing. Uh, So that also is a very influential album on me. Uh, but I can't find it still always looking for it. Never have found it. But one of these days, one of these days, it's just going to pop up somewhere. And that's the thing, like, I don't know if you've, you've experienced this, um, but in this world of, of media where we think everything is at our fingertips, uh-huh. it's, it's kind of amazing how much, like I'm into music and I'm into film and yeah. I'm kind of surprised at how often I find music or films that don't exist online anywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or it's like, oh, there's this album that I loved that I want to listen to and now I I can't. Yeah, I'm like, that's like the one thing that I can be like kind of thankful for YouTube for because like there's this band. Have you heard, have you ever listened to Karate? 
No. I'm, I'm going to highly recommend you to listen to karate. I think you would really okay. like it. But they were this band that I cannot give you any details about. But I had one album when I was in college and I loved them and I saw them play live and I was like, this band is amazing. And then you can't find their music anywhere except for on YouTube. Like I found them on YouTube and I was so grateful for that because I was like, oh, they do still exist out there, but like, they're not on Spotify. They're not on like Apple music. They're not anywhere. And they're one of those bands that I think would be so influential and would be really popular with a lot of people if they actually heard karate. So look, try to find them on YouTube or I'll send you a link if I find it. Cause I think you would really like it. It's definitely for me, it's like indie, but like obscure in a way. And it definitely has some like jazzy feel to it. Like, I think it's something mm. really like, Oh, this is pretty cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Do you, do you know the band, um, I wrote haikus about you in my yearbook. No, but I love okay, that. Okay, there. <laughs> and 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 their their name is also that whole thing, but with no spaces in it. So it's just oh, a wow. string of letters. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, but they're they're like a seminal early early screamo band, and cool. like like legit screamo, not like yeah, hot topic. We listen to them yeah. all. Think of this is screamo. screamo. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but they're a band that like there's very little known about them. Uh the only place you can listen to their music is on YouTube. Yeah. And they were like years before a bunch of other bands that are doing very similar things. Okay. Uh but I think largely just no one ever heard of them and they were ahead of their time and then poof, they disappeared. Mm. Gosh. Yeah, the re the recent one that was an album I loved that I've come back to is We Are Romans by Botch. Yes, oh that, my God, I love Botch so much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's not on any streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. That album I've only found on YouTube. That is hands down one of the greatest albums ever written. One last band yes. I'll throw in because like finding queer music in the hardcore yeah. scene is so fucking difficult. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and like finding bands that aren't all dudes is also incredibly difficult. Yes. But the band that I think so perfectly fits this bill that I am in love with is this band called Dad Thighs. They've only released like, oh, like two albums, I think. And I'm pretty sure they don't exist anymore. Uh, and they're Canadian, if I recall correctly. But it's like, it sits perfectly at the intersection of emo and post-hardcore. Cool. And they're, oh, it's, oh, they are, they are good. They are good. They have so few listeners on Spotify. And I'm like, why? These, this band is perfect. This band needs so many more people to know about them than that. I'm adding them to my Spotify right now. <laughs> Katie, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. This has been so fun. And I feel like I know more about so much, especially classical music. And it's made me um, excited to try and like find uh, more diverse classical music than I guess what I assume classical music is. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, well, you're welcome. And thank you for entertaining me. <laughs> thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at DDY Podcast. We're not as good at the Twitter thing, but we're okay at the Instagram thing. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on our show, send us an email like Katie did at ddypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.